Hello, freaks, and welcome to Synth Horrors, episode 16 of Radical Research. There are like about 34,000 podcasts out there on music, and uh, we want to thank you for choosing the only one that features entire episodes on the likes of Carbonized and Mind Over 4. Clearly, you get what we're all about, and we're grateful to all our supportive listeners. In the whispered words of Derek Smalls, we love you. We're super grateful for the mighty Hank Steamer in Rolling Stone magazine. No joke, Rolling Stone. If you haven't seen it yet, maybe after you're done listening to this episode, pick the web browser of your choice, type in Rolling Stone, type in Radical Research, and see what happens. We really never thought anything would happen when we started this podcast like that. Anything at all. A Hunter said it best the day that the feature posted. You said, uh, this has been a weird day and a great day for the weird, right? <laughs> Indeed it was. Yeah. It was a, a triumph for the marginal. Also, I want to give special thanks to listener Aaron McKay for his generous donation. Speaking of donations, we appreciate them as we have hosting costs, equipment we want to buy to improve the quality of our episodes, and numerous other additional costs. If you appreciate what we do and want us to keep doing it, please help us in any way you can. Our PayPal ID is radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. Before we get into synthors, I wanted to note real quick, we mentioned Hank Steamer giving some amazing coverage to this podcast. Uh, he's in a band called Stats, and he recently mentioned to Hunter and I in an email that he discovered Carbonized when his band was touring in the Southwest a few years ago. They apparently stopped at a truck stop and found a cassette of disharmonization. <laughs> and we're far from the cassette age, so I think that's probably a cassette that had collected dust somewhere in New Mexico for like 15 years, I'm assuming. None of them knew what it was, but it looked cool to them and they jammed the thing and they loved it. And all I can say about that is that wonders never cease. Pretty incredible. Can you imagine like finding Vlad Tethys at a truck stop? No. <laughs> no. Or voice of a slain pig or right. <laughs> any, any of those wonderful compositions. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure that many a truck stop have heard the voice of a slain pig. <laughs> no, this, this is true. <laughs> It'd be a good time to move on, I think. Probably. So in episode 14, after listening to a great moment of the Candlemas song, Hunter mentioned how we're synth whores. You throw a synth on it, we're going to be more forgiving if we don't love it and love it more if we already loved it. So yep. this is the origin of this particular episode. We're going to fire off rapid fire style, some of our favorite moments that wouldn't have been as special without the synthesizer. I, I guess would it be a good time to maybe just give a, if not a brief history, then just kind of a definition of the synthesizer before we get going. I think most people are familiar and we're not going to get too super technical in this one, even though our name is Radical Research. We are just going to kind of like just have some fun with this thing tonight. Yeah. But, you know, can you answer the question succinctly? What What is the synthesizer generally? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an instrument, um, not exclusively a keyboard, but often a keyboard that um, manipulates or synthesizes an audio signal. It, it, it takes a signal and it changes it in some way. And I mean, the, you know, the earliest synthesizers um, came about in the early part of the 20th century. After World War II, um, you started to see a preponderance of modular synthesizers making appearances on, on college campuses at, uh, at research universities. Um, and they were pretty much 
the exclusive province of, you know, academic art music. They were uh, prohibitively expensive. They were not available to the general public. Um, but as pop music evolved and pop music became more ambitious and more expressive, labels availed themselves of these instruments. And then, you know, in the 70s, Bob Moog had the great idea of actually um, making sort of a, a retail uh, model of a synthesizer in the, the in the form of the micro and mini Moogs. And, and that's where you really started to see um, the synthesizer take flight um, in popular culture. It certainly plays a huge part in a lot of the music that Jeff and I love, certainly in the 70s. Um, but it, as you'll see, it plays a huge part in the narrative um, of the music that we love from the 70s up until the, the present day. I don't know if I answered that question well or succinctly. Um, you answered it well. I don't know if it was succinctly, but it was way more than <laughs> I expected to get. Uh, but though, you know, I never underestimate you. So that's, and, that's I, a lot. And thank you for that. I, I, guess, I would like to say this yeah. very quickly, though. If you're looking for a brief tutorial on the analog synthesizer, synthesizers in general, you should probably check out Radiohead's Kid A and um, uh, Amnesiac Records. Kid A yeah. actually features the uh, own Martineau. Um, which is one of the earliest synthesizers. Um, they, uh, Johnny, um, uh, Johnny. Greenwood. Yes, Greenwood. Sorry. That's <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, Johnny Greenwood employs that um, in really, really interesting and surprising ways. And it's kind of a condensed history of um, the collision between art and popular music. So they're, they're not featured here, but Jeff and I love Radiohead dearly. And we urge you to check those out. And I think at that time, there was like a, a wide range of synths that Radiohead was playing around with, right? Which is why they're... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't the theremin one of the earliest synthesizers that wasn't like sort of large and, 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 and unwieldy and sort of like private? I mean, it was, it was made public. Isn't a theremin yeah. technically a synthesizer? Yeah, absolutely. I would yeah. say so. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's, um, it's just one of the earliest synthesizers, period. An artist named Clara Rockmore popularized it. Um, it's extremely hard to play. It takes a great deal of nuance and dexterity to play. And I only know this because um, I have a friend who has a, a theremin. And uh, I, I was shocked at how difficult it was to actually get a sound out of it. It requires <laughs> like vertical and horizontal movement simultaneously, but they, it responds to the, the slightest of movements. Right. And getting, you know, getting into the, the Moog, which we'll talk about a ton tonight, because even though this is called Centaurs, it turned out that a lot of our picks, at least the things that just kind of first came to mind for us, ended up being Moogs. There's just a couple exceptions to that, but they're just, they're mostly Moog. But my right. experience with playing a Moog is that you might get the greatest sound ever and, and you, it's hard to repeat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and it's just, I think it's the nature of synths sometimes. It's like the happy accidents sort of happen. Would you agree with that? You own a Moog. You, you have a Moog. You've, you've messed with them. Yeah. And uh, um, before we actually had, um, I'm, and I, I apologize to anybody for actually talking about my band, but I, I guess it kind of seems apropos. Go for it. Um, given the question, but like before we actually had Donnie in the band, and Donnie um, plays a, a mini Moog Voyager, um, we had a micro Moog. And so, yeah, I mean, all the settings are manual. So we would basically just screw around with it until we found sounds that we liked. And then we would take a notebook and literally record um, the settings of each um, knob in order to replicate that sound. And right. even doing that, it's hard to replicate it with any sort of precision. 
Right. And, and talking about Moogs, you have to talk about some of the other stuff that became, you know, kind of accessible to consumers around the 70s. You know, the Roland stuff, the Yamaha CS80, uh, Oberheim's Polyphonic Sim mm-hmm. and OBX, mm-hmm. the Prophet 5, that was a big one. Big uh, one. Roland's Jupiter 4, Jupiter 8. You still see Roland stuff around quite a bit these days. I just actually, I didn't tell you this, Hunter, but Sunday night I saw Flock of Seagulls live. and uh, I, did, I did not know that. Yeah, well. We haven't caught up in two days, I guess. Uh, <laughs> That's true. We should talk. There, more there's more. my there's my update. But you know, the guy was play, the guy was playing a, um, a, a some Rollins, and well, he's playing a Roland, and then I saw other Rollins on stage that night. There were other bands playing, like uh, Wang Chung and um, Wang Chung played. Dude, so, yeah. Not to get on too much of a tangent, but I'm not a. I didn't think I was a big fan of Wang Chung. Certainly didn't like them back in the day. Still not a huge fan, but two of the songs they played, I thought were phenomenal. I couldn't believe how good they were live. That was probably the highlight of the night. It was like this. It was, awesome. like, it was like this sort of new wave or eighties tour that was going around with, it was headlined by Wang Chung and Flock of Seagulls also had naked eyes in it or what constitutes naked eyes, which was the main guy in that band and a, and a drummer and uh, a lot of programmed music uh, right. and some other stuff. But anyway, did I mention the Prophet Five? That was another big one. Um, yeah, the Arp Odyssey. Uh, unfortunately, well, the Arp Odyssey was a huge one. And and, and unfortunately, in the '80s, you know, the digital synths came along, and we started to get stuff like the Casio, which I, you know, is really, you know, it's been used well. And I, I don't want to totally talk down about the Casio stuff, but it's it just became a cheesier, thinner sound in the '80s. Um, it's a very re- yeah, like reedy sound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But let's let's just get to it. Kind of like our Fusion episode, Radical Research 5. Plan to visit this one again sometime too. Uh, we'll likely revisit some of the Fusion stuff in a show. Uh, we'll revisit the Synth stuff too. So anyone noticing the lack of Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman or Eloy, just settle down. We'll get there at some point. These 10 just kind of occurred to us which, uh, without much overthinking. We just had the idea to let, let, let's actually do a Synth horrors, as we had kind of joked about on episode 14. So here we are. Let's just go and Synth out. So uh, the first track that we're going to play for you tonight is wind by manfred Mann's earth band they were a british sort of proto hard rock proto prog band probably best known um for a song called blinded by the light which is not exactly representative of their sound um in fact um their early albums are full of really really amazing often very kind of rhythmically funky proggy hard rock Wind is a uh, particularly good example of Manfred Mann's synth work. He is one of our absolutely favorite synth players. Am I right, Jeff? You and I had discovered this band originally through the Solar Fire record, and I was immediately taken with the synths, as were you. And I still have been. I, I have pretty much the whole discography up to a certain point. Yeah, he always struck me as just like one of the most interesting and just fun synth players. Like he got some really great sounds, a lot of spirit in his playing. And, you know, synths are as much about the sound, really just, you know, the texture of the instrument as much as it is what they're playing, the notes they're playing. So yeah, his sounds have a very like tactile quality about them. Oh, sure. Let's check out Wynn. This is a great example from their second album, Glorified, Magnified.
Yeah, definitely one of our favorite synthesizerists. Um, you know, one thing about his playing was that he would he would often like get to the edge of bonkers and then just kind of pull back. Like he'd never he'd never go there for very long, but he'd kind of give you a glimpse into like I can get really bonkers here. And right. he kind of starts to do that there and then kind of pulls it back. That actually is in fact the entire wind song. It's one of the few songs we've ever played in its entirety, but it's a short one and, and um it was apropos. What kind of synth do you think that was? If I had to guess, I would probably say an early Yamaha. It has a different sort of tone than a Moog, though, I mean, obviously you can shape analog synthesizers, you know, across a wide spectrum of sounds. But um, I, I couldn't, I can never tell if uh, what he's playing is overdubbed or um, if he's playing at the same time and the Yamahas were polyphonic and they had tone wheels too. So, yeah, that's a wonder of when the polyphonic synthesizers started coming out was that, you know, it just expanded that world so much for, for the player. Well, yeah, I guess it, it expanded the player's live possibilities. Oh, um, yeah. Well, right. You right. Can, you can always in terms of the studio. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, in terms of uh, replication. Right, right. Let's move on. And uh, naturally, Italy is going to come into the conversation. We got a little piece here from the one and only Museo Rosenbach. They released an album in, was it 73? I bl- yeah, yeah, it was 73. Zaratustra. And this is the, basically the, uh, the second movement on that album. Uh, really quintessential Italian prog album. But for now, we're more concerned with uh, some of the synth playing on this. Let's get into it. This is played by Pit Karate. Here we go. Like, I, like you know, Prague is uh, music of multiple dimensions, but like Italian Prague um, really excels at kind of dark drama. There's like a, I don't know, there's like this this warm climate aspect to um, uh, to Italian Prague, like this swarthiness, hmm. uh, I, and I, it just it sounds sort of geographically influenced to me. Yeah. Um, it, it, like the synth sounds um, translate in that way for me, especially in this this track. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it just warm, beautiful, just like really well crafted synths. Like, and that's characteristic of this album. I, I think that Pitt does like an amazing job at writing synth sounds. Um, he's less flamboyant than Manfred Mann, but he, but like, there's also some amazing like Rhodes work on this album too. Um, oh yeah, totally. He he didn't just he wasn't just a synth player. He did organ, piano, right. the whole the whole nine yeah. yards. And there's just n- numerous moments on this album that are incredible. And really, just within the whole Italian Prague sphere, we're gonna listen to another Italian band in a couple snippets here. But um, you know, there's just virtually endless <laughs> examples we could have chosen, and we just chose that <laughs> one. I think that one has a great, glorious kind of just Christ rising from the grave vibe to it. <laughs> I mean, it's very cinematic. It reminds me of those old Jesus movies. <laughs> Christ rising from the grave and getting into a spaceship. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right, exactly. <laughs> you did that, right? 
I, probably. Yeah. I mean, could. I'm sure there's some denomination that would claim such a thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the pronunciation of Moog, by the way, let's, let's just cover that real quick. I got a couple little sort of things to say about it before we move on. Do you know, do you remember, do you have Coliseum 2's first album, Strange New Flesh? Do you know that album? I do. Yeah. And they have a song in there called Dark Side of the Moog, which right. we can only assume that they thought it was pronounced Moog because Dark Side of the Moog is a much better pun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean. Yeah. But in fact. I mean, it, I, for years I thought it was Moog. I did too. And, and I think when I got that album, that was fairly early on in my prog explorations. And I thought, oh, that's such a great pun. Then I learned it was Moog. And I looked at that song tone and I thought, eh, it just doesn't have the same like charm to me that it once did. Uh, great song, great band, great album. But there you, there you have it. And of course, you know, Moog being uh, the surname of Bob Moog. My only other comment on the pronunciation of Moog comes in the form of an anecdote that's actually kind of about, not so much about Bob, but his daughter. I was watching a sound check a couple of years ago. It was on the cruise of the edge ship. I can't remember if I told you this story, um, but it was on the cruise of the edge ship, that great prog festival that happens every year. And this was either before Anglegard or PFM. I don't totally remember, but I'm standing there and one of the roadies says something like, okay, let's have the Moog. And this is not like, and he was like, you know, everybody could hear that. So it was, it's not really like me to do this, but I just was, you know, I don't know, moved by the spirit. You know, I immediately yelled out, it's Moog. And people laughed. I that felt, does sound uncharacteristic of you. Yeah, I, I, I just, I was a dickhead. And people laughed. <laughs> I, I felt vindicated. And I noticed suddenly that to my right was Bob Moog's daughter, Michelle. She was giving me a smile and a thumbs up. Now, I, I, I had met her before. I didn't know she was like right behind me when I said this at this time. But I knew who she was because she had been at Nearfest and she's, you know, she's been a great savior for her, her father since he passed in terms of like, you know, keeping the Moog legacy alive. And, you know, there's Moog Fest every year in Asheville and uh, there's the Moog Foundation and museum and all that. She's really the head of all that stuff. But she just gave me a smile and a thumbs up and uh, that made me feel pretty good. And I educated people on the pronunciation in my own special dickheaded kind of way. <laughs> Oh. Hey, well, the, I mean, the world's a better place for it. <laughs> or at least that ship. for a Right, it, that ship, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we got to move on to Genesis riding the Scree. This is from their Lamb Lies Down on Broadway album. And there's not much that we can say about Tony Banks that hasn't already been said. This guy was a keyboard phenomenon. I mean, the, the guy was incredible. He really formed the foundation of the Genesis sound, although everybody knows there's a lot of players involved in, in making Genesis Genesis. This passage in writing the scree, we picked out two moments because it, this just has some of the best uh, synth stuff I've ever heard. And when we st first started talking about doing this episode, this is probably the first song that came to mind. I think he's playing an ARP pro soloist on this, ARP. We're going to listen to the, uh, the Bonkers first passage and then move on to the kaleidoscopic second passage. Uh, you can't imagine the song without Tony Banks' work on it. Let's check it out.
Well, I think that we immediately um, can see the power of Genesis Genesis's uh, production resources at work. Yeah. Um, I mean, just the, the fullness of the sounds, but like just the richness um, and the texture and the um, development of those sounds is pretty much without peer. I, you know, I, I would agree with you. I mean, Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman are probably more emblematic synth players in some way. Um, but I don't think there's anybody in the whole 70s synth game any better than Tony Banks. Well, yeah, and we just heard like a little snippet that we favor, but <laughs> numerous examples throughout the 70s discography. And even in Absolutely. the 80s. I think he translated really well into the 80s. No, he he really did. Um, but there's like a there's a composure to um, to um, Tony Banks playing um, that I think is in contrast maybe with some of the flamboyance that was uh, typical of the times. Right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And his, yeah, his personality is actually kind of kind of tamped down. A very very sort of mellow, close to the cuff kind of personality. And, right. You know, his playing is like that. Obviously there's a lot of fire to it and a lot of color, but that's Tony Banks. And yeah, he's, he's, you know, you think about the wizard of Oz, like the guy kind of pulling all the levers behind the curtain. Like <laughs> he was that guy in Genesis. Like, like I said, so many personalities and great players uh, pass through Genesis, but uh, he's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. That's, um, that's really kind of one of the, the high points of, of seventies prog synth work or just 70 synth work in general. Yeah, all over that album, especially that back half that gets does get kind of nuts. We're, we're going to move on to a band that, you know, for 16 episodes now, I don't think we've even mentioned, but certainly figures as one of our very favorites. I definitely count them as a top 10 band of, of all time. Uh, that's Blue Oyster Cult. And this band is so fascinating. And this is also a synth line that just came to me immediately when we started do, talking about doing the show. And I know that you probably would have picked it yourself because it it's just quintessential it, and it's it's really short it's probably shorter than the museo rosenbach piece it angers me it angers I, yes because i wish that like blue oyster cult's music was littered with synth work this inspired it's funny you mentioned that yeah it's funny you mentioned that very thing because it's it's really not i mean they, they did have a great variety of sounds and you know i'm not left wanting anything out of their music but you hear this snippet and you're wondering like god why didn't they use that a little more well the reason is from what i've read alan lanier or lanier however you say that rest his soul he's since passed he apparently found a, an early moog model like just kicking around in the columbia studios when they were recording this uh, album and just decided oh i'm just going to use this and this is why <laughs> the snippet's probably so short because it was just sort of this like afterthought like oh okay and well, uh, should have kept it what's that i said he should have kept it, and used it more. <laughs> yeah, i know right yeah. uh yeah let's listen to this little 10 15 second bit from the awesome flaming telepaths off their 1974 album secret treaties Yeah, man. 10 seconds of like, this is what a synth is right there. 
and a Moog. That's the beautiful sound of the Moog. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, Alan, moving right along. Goblin from Italy. Yes. The other Italian entry here. Again, as I've said before, probably too much. Numerous possibilities here. We chose one from their very first album, Profondo Rosso. A little bit called Wild Session, played by the inestimable Claudio Simonetti. I mean, you know, mostly known for their soundtrack work. They were associates of Dario Argento um, throughout the 70s. Um, wrote an amazing um, record that was uh, just an album of original material called Roller. The best. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, Roller's incredible. Um, they actually have their origins in an incredible Italian prog group called Cherry Five, who released a self-titled record, and I think is like just absolute top-tier Italian prog. Agreed. Uh, yeah, um, and and I I don't I don't know about you, Jeff, and how far you go with uh, with Goblin, but I I like Goblin um, pretty much through the '70s. Um, they released a, a, a another soundtrack for a non-Argento movie um, called uh, Wio Omega. Um, I, you uh, know, I don't have that. You and Craig Zoller, both, uh, you know, great friends of mine, great Goblin fans have prompted me to get that thing more than once. And I, I don't have that one. It's really good. I mean, it's like kind of, um, like cocaine heavy synthesis, like, uh, um, you had me at cocaine. Goblin. Say what? You had me at cocaine. Yeah. And, and I think their mustache <laughs> is the kicker at that time too. Right. Uh, yeah. Cocaine and mustache Goblin. It's a great sound. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not uh, not a big advocate of cocaine uh, personally, but um, I love the hosts of radical research do not in any way <laughs> condone the use of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, save the children and all that crap. But I mean, yeah. really, uh, it, music influenced by it is, can be pretty awesome. <laughs> it can be quite good. Yes. Yeah. Here we are. So, Buio Omega. Um, I go pretty far. Non Hosono was kind of their reunited album with uh dario argento um i you know some of the later some of the newer stuff like four of a kind is good the goblin rebirth album that relapse put out is really good so and you actually got to see them in 2013 correct uh yeah exactly it was it was fantastic they were really good i who knew what to you never know what to expect when you see sort of these older bands and you know they come out on stage looking quite old and that's you know, nothing against them because people get old. Yeah, I mean, we're getting older too. I'm headed that way myself. But yeah. like, like they come on stage, you're like, mm, this looks like it could be just kind of dad rock and old rock and who knows how they're going to be. They tore our heads off that night. I mean, wow. <laughs> it was so, so 100% Goblin. 
Uh, yeah, great band. It's edgeless, ageless. Yeah, now we could go on about Goblin. They're great, and uh, obviously, you know, synth fetishists like the rest of us. I sometimes wonder if the if it weren't for the invention of the electric guitar, the distortion pedal, and synthesizers, if we'd really even care much about music. <laughs> Probably, we would be reading much more. <laughs> Catch up on my reading. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Good answer. So we're going to have a little synth overload here. Uh, this comes to us from Epidaurus. We mentioned them at some earlier episode too, talking about our love for synths. I guess it was that yeah. same kennel. It was probably the same. Yeah. Because yeah, this yeah. is a prime exemplar of, yeah, you, you, you and I, neither, neither of us um, think this record's perfect. We have our issues with it, but as, um, as a display of synth work, um, it is, you know, a very nearly a masterpiece. Oh yeah, there's a lot of great just textural landscapes here, and, and a lot of that's due to you know um, their names were Gunter Henna and Gerd Linka, and uh, they had two full-time synth players, so that tells you something. And this is this is just a beautiful part from their song Andas, and uh, we'll come back and talk about it. Prime six. I mean, it, and it keeps going. Like that's just we had to fade out for for, for time purposes. But boy, we, we hope you explore yourself. That's from their Earthly Paradise album, their only album from uh, 1977. I believe it's the only one. And yeah, uh, we hear some mini Moog there, some Poly Moog probably, um, some other synths too, using a kind of using a bed underneath. And then you start listening into the drumming, which is quite good. Some great percussion, some great bass playing. It's uh, a pretty awesome sound. Yeah, for sure. So we've really focused quite a bit on, on Prague here naturally uh, when we talk about synths. You have to talk about Prague. But some people right around the late 70s, early 80s started using synthesizers for different means, different purposes. Um, one of them was a guy named Gary Newman who came from a band called Two Boy Army, kind of a, I don't know, punk or post-punk thing. Yeah, post-punk, yeah. Uh, he very quickly gravitated toward the Moog synthesizer because of its power, its, its sort of low-end throb, 
He's likened it to sort of hearing Black Sabbath uh, really loud and just kind of the, the wallop that that gives you, that sort of primal gut reaction that you have to that. He felt that uh, he would kind of, you know, use Moog's to try to get that same effect going. If you haven't heard I think it, that would be a good time to mention the BBC documentary on, uh, on synth pop. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go for it. I, I, I don't know if I've seen the whole thing. I think you have. So you, you, if you want to talk about it. No, it's quite good. I mean, it, it's sort of a companion piece to the BBC documentary on um, prog rock, the prog rock Britannia. Um, okay. It just talks about the origins of electronic music in Great Britain in the late seventies. Um, you know, beginning with Cabaret Voltaire and uh, Throbbing Gristle and then moving into synth pop. Obviously, Gary Newman factors into that, um, you know, quite heavily. Early well, Human League had to, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, you, OMD, uh, the Human League, um, whose travelogue you and I both hold in, in high regard. Yeah, and the um, first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the first But But at any rate, it's available on YouTube um, and free of charge, and we would urge you to check that out. Yeah, very cool. And Gary Newman is a favorite of mine from this whole movement. Um, his early stuff is great. The album Replicas is awesome, and The Pleasure Principle as well. These are these are both albums built on the Moog, specifically the Poly Moog and the Mini Moog, uh, kind of what we heard from Epidaurus, actually. We're going to play a little bit from a song called Conversation off 1979's The Pleasure Principle. that I really like about that track is the contrast between um, the heaviness and the depth of the Moog and his rather tiny voice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was like the starkness of that. For sure. Um, yeah. So the, the next track, we're going to, we're going to jump decades here, essentially. The eighties were obviously defined as much by synthesizers um, as by guitars. Um, but as Jeff mentioned earlier, it was uh, principally digital synthesizers. Um, and the tones were entirely different. They were thinner. They were more, for a <laughs> lack of a better word, synthetic. Um, sure. The more plastic, um, polished, um, had less character, less depth, um, required, le required much less of the, the actual player. 
Right. All the, all the sounds were programmed. And that's not necessarily bad. I want to pop in and say just yeah. something like the Buggles. Like I'm a huge fan of those two albums that that, that band put out or that duo. And, um, you know, they used that new technology for good and nothing but good. Cause it was just, a, it was all about the song. And while the synths kind of took a back seat, uh, they were still just a huge kind of, you know, integral part of the sound. And I think that, yeah followed with so many of those 80s bands but um you know oh, yeah, I mean, you, you and i are, are both admirers of of lots and lots of 80s music i mean you know 80s rush and yes and we sure both the first two duran duran records sure. Basically, play, i mean it, it goes on and on so i don't mean that comment derisively but there was there was less the the sounds of the 80s were less reliant upon the yeah, upon the abilities of the player. Yeah, um, no, you're right. I, I didn't. I don't take it derisively, but yeah. I, I think it. But it has to be kind of almost defended because there was a lot of garbage thanks to digital synthesizers in that right. era, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No need to point so them out. They know in the '90s, um, and and especially in metal. Once the '80s were over, um, metal bands started to sort of look backwards. And mm-hmm. I, I'm I know I'm paraphrasing here, but there's a phrase that that Ian Christie used in Sound of the Beast. And I, I even think Amorphous was mentioned and it was something like tying together the decades. Um, and I always really liked that. You know, in the early and mid nineties, metal bands started to, to look uh, back to, you know, influences beyond the eighties. Um, and Finland's Amorphous um, were one of the front runners in, in doing that. Um, their uh, landmark album, one of my favorite albums of all time, uh, 1994, is Tales from the Thousand Lakes, features a lot of sort of analogy synthesizer sounds. I'm not sure if um, if Casper was actually playing analog synthesizers or if they were modeled or, or not. But on 1996's Elegy, um, Kim Rontala um, really, really began to explore um, 70s synth textures in a new and kind of recontextualized 90s way. Um, we're going to play a track. It's the third track off of their album, Elegy. It, it's called The Orphan. This is actually my first real brush with the Moog. This, this, the, the, this is like the seed in my obsession. And if you haven't heard this, I, I think that you'll understand why after we play this track.
Yeah, as you kind of said, it's a lot more well integrated there on Elegy than it was on Tales. I think Tales is great. Right. I think as highly of that album as you do. Um, but I think Casper's playing on that one was like a hammer being thrown at you, whereas Tim yeah. Rantala was like, you know, kind of using that hammer to build something kind of beautiful and a little more yeah, exactly. sort of functional, you know what I mean? Kind of within the exactly. material. Great example. And that's, that's cool. I actually didn't, I didn't know that that was your kind of first meeting, your fall in love moment with the Moog. That's where it came, man. Cool. And I'm sure it probably wasn't far from then that you discovered paroxysm, perhaps. No, about a year later. Yeah. Yeah. On that awesome three inch CD thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exism excursion. Actually, thanks to you and your, your piece in Metal Maniacs about oh, the okay. yeah, um, Finnish groove thing. Oh yeah. I almost forgot about that, but yeah, that's right. I was really into that stuff at that time. Of course, Zisma, who we will be doing a show on Zisma someday. I'm, I am absolutely certain. Of course. No, no. Uh, but that band was huge for me. Paroxysm is part of that whole line. Yeah. And they, and they were cool because, you know, accepting their first demo, which was just crude death metal. This band was really interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of them was just instrumentation alone, not just prominent synthesizer sounds, but they used an electric violin pretty often too. Yeah. Um, and that would sometimes trick the ear. They they used it so that it kind of sounded a bit like a synth, actually. Um, yeah, they would distort it and manipulate it. Yeah, they had a, just a really rich and interesting sound. Really, they were probably the tightest of those of the Finnish bands as well. Yeah, I think in the most I think in the most creative. I mean, Zisma were creative from album to album in right. terms of their evolution, but you know because they were doing kind of drastic changes from the, those albums, you know, drastic leaps. But Paroxysm just all their material was just so interesting and their evolution was also really fascinating. I really, one of the most, and we say this a lot in this program, but you know, <laughs> it goes without saying that Paroxysm was easily one of the most underrated metal bands of all time. Incredibly ignored. Had they got, had a chance to make their great album, I'm, I'm sure we would have had one right around this time of 96, but all we got was a, a three inch CD uh, EP, <laughs> but you know, they had some great demos. On Crawfish Records, right? Yes, I know that Jason Walton, um, the least of his credits is uh, that he's a radical research listener, but of course people know him from Agaloc and uh, the new band Karata. And a lot of his <laughs> yeah, other I too. think that his, uh, his uh, patronage of radical research is subordinate to his work in Agalog. You think? <laughs> <laughs> no, but Jason, Jason's great. You can tell us, Jason. Yeah, no, Jason's great, but he's, a, he's always been a paroxysm champion and, and Don Anderson as well from uh, Agaloc and Karata as well. He's, is Miko Matilla a paroxysm champion? Because uh, he's Visma is like maybe his favorite band ever. He's yeah. a huge disgrace fan, uh, yeah. but I don't know that I've ever really heard him say much about paroxysm. Well, I know he's commented on some of our episodes, so he'll he'll have to pipe up. I'm I'm uh, fortunate to know the guy a little bit, and um, I will have to ask mighty, him. Mighty Miko Matilla. We will uncover that. But for now, let's listen to uh, something from that little EP, a little track called Fear.
So that little slice definitely starts with some Moog, but I think we hear that electric violin creep in there, in there at the end. Yes, I, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. But it's seamless. It's really incredible. That, that band is great. Um, so props to uh, Kimo Kuakala, the, the Moogist in paroxysm. <laughs> we, uh, we move a little bit west to one of our favorite geographic locations on the globe, Norway. This is an interesting pick. This is one that Hunter chose. And um, why, why don't you just go ahead and talk about it? So this is uh, the fifth track off of Perdition City, which is one of my favorite Alba records. We've obviously began our podcasting journey um, with their fourth album, William Blake, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, but this is an even more radical diversion from that. This is where they basically divorce themselves from metal altogether and move into very nearly entirely electronic realms. It, it it's, seems like an odd choice, but I would argue... Um, that this show is an examination of electronic synthesis as much as, as it is about traditional keyboards. And I would think that all the, the tracks that we've chosen, the clips that we've chosen so far, have been um, generated by keyboards. But even if the sounds on this track are programmed, um, they're a product of the same process that produces the sounds on the other songs. We end on a really climatic point in the song. Um, where you get this gigantic electronic squelch um, that you'll hear in just a moment. And um, I'm not entirely sure that it is a Moog, um, but I would think that its uh, genetic material is made of the Moog. Perdition City is maybe my second favorite over record, and this is my favorite song on this album. It's just a very, very special piece of music to me, and I'm thrilled to share it with you all tonight. Um, I, think I think it fits in with our synth whoring schemes for sure. I do too. Yeah, and I think it's a fitting conclusion to our uh, program here. Let's go with the future sound of music.
there you have it, the future sound of music, which is a bold proclamation in and of itself. But if that's the future of music, I'm going to be happy. I think it also is worth mentioning that um, the drums on that, uh, when they kick in, um, were recorded by uh, Baird Faust of Emperor. Um, when he was still imprisoned, he recorded them on a set of Roland V drums. And there's, there's a lot of, um, I mean, pretty much the entire album, um, the drumming on it is programmed. Um, but there is a, a distinctly human element to, to, and, and dynamism to the performance on that song. Um, that uh, really um, kind of climaxes uh, with that synth swell. Anyway, one of one of my favorite little bits of music ever, probably. Yeah, that, um, that's an amazing moment on an amazing album, and uh, kind of you know give, gives a nice bookend to where we started with Manfred Mann and and Prague. Yep. And so. Um, yeah, Hunter, this is uh, this has been a lot of fun, um, and not one mention of Voivod. Oh wait. Oh wait. There yeah. it is. Or or flute. <laughs> we've kind of been ignoring the flute lately i um, we have. We'll, we'll have to do a show on the flute sometime maybe a, maybe yeah, a, like 10 flute decapitations perhaps <laughs> yeah <laughs> For Hunter Ginn and myself, Jeff Wagner, we look forward to having you with us next episode as we survey the short career of Swedish band Afflicted. From the early days as Afflicted Convulsion to their unlikely final year as a straight-up traditional heavy metal band, we'll zoom in closely on this extraordinary outfit with special focus on their incredible 1992 debut album, Prodigal Son. So in two weeks, be there or be hip. Moog Modular Synthesizer. Mini Moog. Moog Satellite. Moog Sonic 6. Minute Moog. Micro Moog. Poly Moog. Moog Taurus Bass Pedals. Multi Moog. Moog Prodigy. Moog Liberation. Moog Opus 3. Moog Concert Mate MG1. Moog Rogue. Moog Source. Memory Moog. Moger Foger. Mini Moog Voyager. Moog Little Fatty. Slim Fatty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you broke first, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Taurus 3 Bass Pedal. Minotaur. Sub Fatty. Sub 37. Moog Vergstadt 01. Emerson Moog Modular. Mother 32. Subsequent 37 CV. Limited run of 2,000 units. Subsequent 37.